whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Season 3 of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Thank you, Kieran, uh, and thank you for, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm Jay Wallace. I teach at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and I guess I'm a moral philosopher in the old-fashioned sense. I don't know how many uh, moral philosophers that of this old-fashioned kind there are going to be in the future, uh, but what I mean by that is that I'm kind of interested in all of the different sub-areas within moral philosophy, metaethics, moral psychology, normative ethics, theory of practical reason, and kind of how they hang together. Uh, I've written several books on uh, responsibility and the moral sentiments, on our retrospective attitudes toward things that happened in the past. And most recently, I've uh, written a book in systematic ethical theory called The Moral Nexus about the relational structure of the domain of interpersonal morality. Well, I can't resist picking up on something you said in the course of that introduction, which is that you weren't sure how many philosophers, moral philosophers of this kind there would be in the future. So can you say more about what the why you think that's unlikely and, and how you feel about that? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I have no confidence in predictions about the future of philosophy, but uh, I share the sense of many people that the field is under pressures of professionalization kind of fragmenting into ever more kind of narrow areas of specialization, right? And uh, and that seems to be characteristic uh, of all, all work in systematic philosophy these days. And so, you know, many of the younger people I encounter in moral philosophy, they're, they're, they seem to be primarily interested in meta-ethics as opposed to normative ethics or moral psychology. And for, just to take that that example, and, you know, the the, the kind of work that steps back from these narrow areas and tries to look at the connections between them seems difficult for young people to have the space and the leisure to to do. And I, I guess this nourishes some some vague concern of mine about, you know, wh- whether whether the profession will support this kind of activity in, in the future. It connects to one of my my fears about philosophy is something I was hoping maybe to talk to you about uh, later on, but it's perhaps a concrete example of a broader trend that's not entirely welcome in in the development of professional philosophy these days. Well, it sounds like maybe we will come back to to this or things related to it at the at the very end. So, it, rather than doing that now, I'm going to ask you the first Iris Murdoch question. So, she is an inspiration for the podcast and begins it by telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So, would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work? And if so, how? Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting observation of, of Murdoch's. And I'd say that in, in my case, at least, my temperament almost certainly does influence the kind of work I do. You know, it's hard to be very precise about what the influence might be, but I'd, I I guess I'd, I'd take a stab at characterizing it by by referring to my my temperamental 
intolerance of disorder. I'm kind of a hyper-organized person. I like to for things to be in their place. I just if you come into my office, you'll see that it's a, a fairly neat, well-organized, well. It's not one of those offices where I'm I'm drowning in and books and their you know their papers all over the floor and that kind of thing. It's quite the opposite. And I th- I think that kind of tendency. It's a we might characterize it as a kind of anal personality type in some ways, undoubtedly feeds into my work. You know, philosophy is about making sense of things and seeing how they fit together. And the way I do that is to construct kind of idealized pictures of domains of normative thought or emotional experience. And and that, that sorts them out in, in some ways and in ways that I think kind of dovetail with this personality tendency I've been characterizing. That's really interesting. I mean, one way one might take Murdoch's question is as expressing a potential anxiety about philosophy that one's character is and one's temperament is influencing one's work in ways that make one second guess it. So I can imagine someone being tempted by intolerance of disorder to certain kinds of unifying views. For instance, I mean, in, in your recent work on directed obligation, it turns out that moral wrongness, directed wrongdoing, and a certain kind of contractualist view about morality sort of all converge into one kind of unified picture. I mean, do you worry that the influence of that intolerance for disorder on your work is is potentially distorting? Or like, what's your attitude to the way in which that influences you? Yeah, well, I, I mean, potentially distorting. I, I mean, it, I think it leads to a, a certain kind of philosophy, which is a kind of, as I was saying, idealizing philosophy, where I you know, we, we've got this very messy phenomenon of interpersonal morality that I think in our experience of it probably is influenced and, and inflected by all kinds of values and preferences and emotional tendencies uh, that, that don't, you know, don't have a lot of internal mm-hmm. unity to them. And I'm trying to kind of, in, in this project, to kind of extract from that messy experience of interpersonal morality, a kind of central relational normative structure and, and and think about how morality might look if we interpret in terms of these structures that this kind of structure you know i i, I guess i'm I, i'm well aware that that idealizing tendency involves some distortion it's one way of doing philosophy and making sense of things there there are other ways of proceeding maybe bernard williams's way which is hyper attentive to the the unsystematic uh, messiness of our moral experience and the heterogeneity of the values that go into it. But, but, but you know, I think there are just different styles of philosophy. I, I, I think that idealizing style, style, even if it leaves something out, also is one way of making sense of things. And it seems to be the one that, that dovetails with my, my own philosophical personality. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I mean, it's sort of, it, as well as Williams, you might mention Murdoch here as someone who is associated with particularism, the kind of the idea that right. morality is sort of resistant to systematization. And it sounds like you're sort of temperamentally disinclined to think of morality that way. Yes. Uh, I think there's a temperamental aspect to it. And as I say, I, I, I value other ways of making sense of things that would be antithetical to this temperament of mine. You know, and I, I regret that I'm not in some ways a different kind of philosopher, but I, but you know, i but I'm, I guess I have enough confidence in what I do that I think that, that it's one way of making sense of things to 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 give us a slightly idealizing uh, account, a kind of snapshot of a kind of normative picture of how things, you know, how things might systematically make sense. And then we can 
you know, we and invite the reader to to reflect for themselves about the degree to which their own experience has uh, reflects elements of this kind of idealized picture that I sketched in my in my book. Well, the idea of a, a kind of desire for order makes me speculate about your answer to the second question I'm going to ask you, which is this: What is your worst moment as a philosopher? Ah. <laughs> That, it's interesting that you were trying going to connect that up to the the, the first question because I think I'm going to disappoint you on that point. Oh, that's um, fine. That's fine. Because <laughs> I, you know, I, that my worst moment is not a moment where I wasn't able to construct some idealized uh, story that fit everything neatly together. But it was a moment that, in a different way, dovetails with things you've been thinking about. It was kind of a midlife crisis moment uh-huh. that uh, affected me after I moved to 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 Berkeley in in 2000. Um, I was in my my early 40s then, which is a characteristic time for for this sort of thing. And you know, I, I kind of conceived this move to Berkeley as my last professional move. I'd been in Berlin before that. Uh, I started at, at the University of Pennsylvania, and it it felt like I'd I, I'd arrived in in various ways where I really wanted to be for the rest of my career. But but weirdly, I had the experience that kind of the life went out of philosophy for me for for a couple of years. At this moment, and it, it and it was it it was it was depressing because this is what I you know what I do and what I live for in some ways. It didn't really affect my teaching so much, but but it definitely did infect my research in various ways, and it was sort of depressing. I have to say. Yeah, there is this phenomenon of sort of being in constant motion and then resting and suddenly finding that sort of de- deflating, which I, I I also have a strong association with. How did you recover? Like, what, was there a story about how you? came out of that sort of despondency about philosophy? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um in my case it wasn't really it wasn't about regret. I did there was nothing I regretted necessarily. Um it, it, I think it was just a, a a reaction to to a certain kind of loss, you know, that earlier phase of striving and moving around is tremendously exciting. The future is open in some ways. There's something exhilarating about being embarked on something really difficult where you're not sure what the result is going to be. And, you know, the the very bourgeois experience I had of, you know, having finally accomplished what I set out to do was was a, a sense of kind of nostalgia for that more exhilarating phase of my earlier career. And, my, you know, my own case, we, we talked um, before the podcast briefly about your, your becoming department chair, but, but actually it fell to me shortly thereafter to take over my own department as department chair. And I think that's what kind of nudged me out of this, um, this, this phase. There were a new set of challenges that I could devote myself to that were, that were connected to what I do professionally, but that were different from the things we do when we write our articles and books. And, you know, I found I had a kind of talent for it, and I thought there was a lot that needed to be done. My department was undergoing a massive kind of demographic change, and it, a lot of work needed to be put into just kind of managing that and holding things together. And it was it was kind of fun and interesting and rewarding. Some of it was tedious and uh, uh, annoying, as you no doubt are aware, being department chair yourself. But but it kind of reinvigorated me uh, professionally and, and and gave me a renewed appreciation for uh, my own philosophical work. So I, w- I was fortunate to, it's not that I sought this administrative challenge out as a response to the professional crisis, but it was, it turned out to be fortuitous. Wow. That's one of the, the more positive 
accounts of academic administration and being department chair I've heard. I mean, I I, uh, I, I hope I will come to experience it that way. I, I will look forward to to trying to reframe it in that in that light. It doesn't work for everyone, I have to say, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the third question I want to ask you is sort of continuous to this in a way about sort of worst moments and, and recovering one's excitement about philosophy. It's this. What do you love or hate most of all about philosophy? Yeah, I, I, let me focus on the hate side of it. And I think I would want to focus not on something about philosophy per se, but on perhaps something about the the contemporary practice of philosophy. and 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 that would just be it's hyper professionalization. This does connect back up to something we began by talking about. Yeah, you know, and the and the, the phenomenon here is is a broader part of the uh, the contemporary academy. I think in in uh, across many different fields, there's there's increasing pressure towards professionalization and narrow specialization. My my impression from I, I served on a university level um, kind of academic personnel committee for three years a little while ago. And my, my sense was that, you know, tenure expectations, for instance, and in, in other social scientific disciplines have just gone up massively in the past couple of decades. So I think that and that's a reflection of the same professionalization pressures that we're experiencing in philosophy. But I but I, I, I kind of hate the effect that they're having on the practice of philosophy these days. It's I, I, I think it's, and especially when I think about younger people going into the field, I think, you know, I, I wish we could find a way to give them just a little more time to to think about bigger picture issues, to figure out what they really want to say and do, and weren't kind of forcing them to kind of worry in their second year in graduate school about submitting things for, for publication in various ways. I mean, there's several dimensions to this, I think, something that, that I also worry about. So part of it is, is sort of these quantitative demands that people applying to grad school look much more polished than anyone looked, at least certainly than I looked when I was applying to grad school 25 years ago. And then when they apply for jobs, they need more publications or they need to have a, have a kind of stronger on paper CV and so on. But there's also, I mean, there's a, I think the specialization thing is connected with that, but it's not exactly this. It has a kind of independent life because even people who are established philosophers who aren't under those kinds of pressures, I think the kind of work that's being produced often seems more specialized or, or narrower or more sometimes more technical, but has less of the kind of scope and scale of the, than the kind of work you're lamenting, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. It's a it, yeah, it is a broader phenomenon. It's not just affecting the the, the younger people going into the field. You know, I'm often struck refereeing papers uh, these days that you know you that you read you you read many papers where you see no references to work that was published more than five years ago. You know, debates that are almost entirely defined by a very recent literature and philosophers at all career stages are doing work like that, which is a natural response uh, to these broader broader pressures we're all under. And I, I do feel like that's a lamentable trajectory for the field. One one specific aspect of it that I wish we could, you know, I I, I have the sense that you know our our processes of refereeing work have almost completely broken down in philosophy as as mechanisms for reliably distinguishing between good and bad philosophy. And I I don't know entirely what what explains that, and I certainly don't know what the solution is. But it's a it's a really unfortunate situation. You know, I've, I've was doing placement. I was placement advisor in my department for several of the recent years. And it just was, you know, it, it was poignant to see, you know, the differences in the career trajectories of equally strong students when you talk to their advisors, uh, you know, one of whom might have had the good 
fortune to get a paper published in the Phil Review uh, or, or the Journal of Philosophy before they go on the job market. And, and you know, another candidate with equally good work, as far as anyone could tell, uh, would languish for years in processes of obscure journal refereeing. And, you know, I think, uh, I, th I think we should, we, we, as a profession, should brainstorm about uh, ways of improving the pipeline that, that leads to publication if we're going to put so much pressure on people to you know, have pro professional credentials of this kind. And um, I, I, I put that out there just as a kind of open problem. I don't have a specific solution to it. Wish I knew what we could do about it. No, I, I think that that too has many dimensions. And part of it is that the slowness and chanciness and randomness of journal refereeing. And the other, I think, is to do with the, partly to do with the way in which a paper that, that clearly makes an incremental move in a debate and everyone can see that and there aren't any obvious sort of objections to it's not sort of covers the bases it's hard to reject whereas a paper that's doing something more surprising and strange is potentially easier to to question and reject and then there's also the, the sort of arms race phenomenon that no one wants to be the first to sort of un unilaterally back off the the kind of tenure and promotion demands or the publication demands. And there is a kind of collective action problem that I, I think w sort of would require concerted effort to, to try and, to try and remedy. So I, I'm, I'm going to take us back to, to philosophy and hinge points in your philosophical career with question four. Have you changed your mind about anything important in philosophy? And if so, how? Yeah, I think I think one of the things I've changed my mind about is, you know, it, it touches on a, a central question in the in the theory of reasons for action or, or the conception of normativity. In my, I guess, in my graduate school days, you know, I was very exercised by 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 arguments by philosophers like Tom Nagel about the objective character of reasons for action. And and I felt felt myself kind of drawn to to push back against those arguments and to to kind of insist that reasons for action had subjective conditions of some kind or other. And it was you know it was kind of an almost an emotional attachment to the this this kind of view that that reasons for action had to be in some way conditioned by elements in one's um, psychology or one's as Williams would put it, subjective motivational set. And, you know, over the years, through a gradual process, interestingly, you know, I've kind of, I've, I've kind of moved to the other side of, of this debate. This happened uh, a while ago, but it happened, I would say, in, you know, maybe the, the first six years after, after graduate school. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's not clear. There was no kind of aha moment where I saw the, saw the light and, Gave up my, you know, antecedent attraction to more subjectively conditioned conceptions of reasons for action or normativity. I, I, I think it was a process of just talking to people like Tim Scanlon and re reading and thinking very carefully about uh, some of their arguments that that gradually that that gradu gradually led me to get, give up this this earlier view I'd been I'd been a, attached to. I mean, part of it was, I, I suppose, in the the early phase, one one thing that was motivating we was a feeling that there was no kind of convincing or knockdown argument that, for instance, considerations of justice were reasons for any that anyone uh, should care about, or or considerations that provided reasons for everyone. And I think one one thing that happened as I moved to a more kind of objective conception of of reasons for action was 
was was the the thought that we maybe we don't need kind of knockdown arguments that are going to show that you're you're necessarily irrational or rationally defective in some way if you don't respond to these reasons to have a convincing objectivist uh, account. So I I kind of ratcheted down my expectations for you know what a successful argument would look like in this area of philosophy. That might have been something that accompanied this change in view, but I'm not sure that it was the the cause of it. Did that have a wider impact on how you do or think about philosophy? The sort of the the thought that there are certain kinds of contested philosophical views that it's okay that we don't have arguments for. That not being able to convince people is consistent with being right and even knowing that we're right. So knowing that justice matters and being unable to convince the sort of committed egoist is just that's just how it is. I mean that that sort of. I can imagine that sort of destabilizing your relation to other kinds of problems in philosophy. Because now, instead of thinking, well, everything contentious, you just got to argue for it. Now, the the option is on the table to say, well, you know, there, that's just one of the things we don't have to argue for. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, question. I think you're right about that. There is something destabilizing about this uh, this way of thinking about these debates. But I, you know, I guess I've just come to live with it. I think that's characteristic of philosophical debate more more generally. The, you know, they're they're there really aren't that many kind of knockdown arguments in philosophy. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the most interesting philosophy that I've engaged with, or the, the philosophy I find most interesting, doesn't have a lot of arguments in it. You know, it's kind of putting a view together there uh, about how things might hang together that offers an in- a kind of compelling interpretation of some phenomenon or domain of experience and inviting people to reflect about whether that makes sense of things that are otherwise mysterious. Um, that, you know, and it, and it's not going to work for everyone. And, and that's actually characteristic of philosophical debates. No, that seems right to me. That's certainly my, my experience sort of matches yours on that. I'm going to ask you one final question. This is another Iris Murdoch question inspired by a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Yeah, that's a really interesting quote of, of Murdoch's. And I'm I'm not sure I understand why she thinks it's particularly uh, an interesting question to ask of philosophers what they're afraid of. I'm, I'm not sure I have a line on that. But anyway, since you put the question to me, I, I guess my the thing I'm most afraid of at the moment is... You know, you know, it, it connects to a more general phenomenon uh, about what it is to lead um, a meaningful or an interesting life, but but it's a, a it's almost surely a part in part a matter of in, engaging with with projects or activities that that you that you see as valuable in some ways, and to be invested in and in my case, philosophy is the center of these act- activities, but but to be invested in that way in engagement with with valuable activities is is necessarily in some ways uh, to care that uh, about whether they're going to survive and and continue to flourish into the future and in particular after after one is gone and you know I think on multiple levels my what I'm afraid of at the moment is that you know the multi-level destabilization in the social world that we're all experiencing right now is going to be inimical to the survival of the kinds of Values that I care about most passionately in in the life that I'm I'm leading. There's a specific professional version of this that involves philosophy, um, and and we've already touched on aspects of this. But I'm I I have a fear about whether the kind of philosophy that I find interesting or valuable is really going to be able to survive into the future, given the kind of institutional and professional pressures that it's under. 
there's also a kind of political dimension of this. We we live in a in the United States in a democracy that seems like it's very unstable and fragile at the moment. And uh, you know, a lot of our civic life is organized around some kind of conviction that 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 we're at least a, a kind of democratic culture that is incrementally capable of of being improved in the direction of greater justice. But it's 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 increasingly hard to have a lot of optimism about that. And I, you know, one, ha- one fears for the future of one's country, just as one fears for the, the future of, of philosophy. Yeah, me too. And that there's sometimes there's a sense that working on certain kinds of problems in philosophy is in some way frivolous, but actually the kind of political future in which philosophy and other kinds of pursuits that are non-instrumental in the way philosophy is are no longer humanly possible is a kind of terrifying dystopian one. I mean, the kind of picture of what human life would be like if we weren't in a position to reflect in these ways, and that it would it would have to be a situation of of sort of bare survival. That that is, uh, it's very bleak to think about. It is. It's a sad note to end on, but um, but I think that's the world we're living in right at the moment. Well, we'll end on a sad note this week, and I'll say thank you so much, Jay, for appearing on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kieran. R.J. Wallace is William and Trudy Ausfall Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of Responsibility and the Moral Sentiments, The View from Here, and The Moral Nexus. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.